My goodness, you guys lifted the roof with that singing. It was so beautiful, so powerful, and so simple. Just the power of Christ. Um, I, I've just been so um, struck with that this week uh, and last week, looking at the life of Paul, looking at all the extraordinary things that God did through him. I mean, all the extraordinary things that, that we can read of, like there was lots of stuff that God did through him that we don't read of. Looking at all that and then looking at how it all just boiled down to one thing, the power of Christ, the power of the simplicity of the gospel that he chose to elevate above everything else in his life. As I was uh, praying here this morning, I was just thinking about how cool it would be if Jesus would be here in person, right? You could just talk to him. You could ask him all kinds of questions. And I was like, Jesus, why did you say it's better for you to go away and to send the helper? And then Dan talks about it this, uh, this morning, later this morning. And I just felt like it it came to me so clearly. Jesus didn't just want to be known in the flesh. And while he was with his disciples, they saw the stuff he did. They saw the miracles. They saw his power. They heard his words. And three years later, you know what they were doing? They were still fighting about who was going to be the greatest. They were still arguing with each other. They didn't understand who Jesus was after three years of watching him in the flesh. And Thomas said one day, he's, he's like, Jesus, just show us the Father and it'll be, it will suffice. And Jesus is like, Thomas, you've been with me all this time and, and yet now you're saying, show us the Father. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. But they couldn't understand it because they were looking at Jesus through a fleshly perspective and Jesus cannot be understood from a fleshly perspective. You cannot understand him in the flesh. This is crucial to get a hold of. Because if you seek to know Jesus in the flesh only, you will not get to know him. He has to come through revelation of the Spirit. That's why he said, it's better for me to go. Because when I go, I will send the Spirit, the Helper, the advocate, it's not just, just like an, a legal advocate who, who um, speaks for you in court, but it's like this, this helper who's going along in your life and he's saying, this is, this is what you need to do in this situation. This is the truth that you need to know right now. He's teaching you everything you need to know. And he reveals Jesus to us. That's the gift of the Spirit. He's always speaking about Jesus. That's his job. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. The disciples, yep, they were with him. They saw the stuff he did, but they still just knew him in the flesh. But when the spirit came, Jesus was revealed to them in spirit and they really got to know who he was in a new way. So a little recap on yesterday, uh, looking at the life of Saul Saul of Tarsus, a devout religious Jew brought up in Jerusalem at the feet of Gamaliel, educated there, a Pharisee of Pharisees, extremely zealous for the traditions of his fathers, earnestly devoted to serving the one true God, not not some foreign God, but actually the one true God, so devoted to defending the truth that he was spending his life traveling around, hunting down heretics, and suddenly... His life was wrecked with an encounter with God. And to his utter chagrin, God wasn't who he thought he was. The God of his forefathers that he had been so intent on pleasing and serving turns out to be none other than Jesus of Nazareth, whom he had been persecuting. And he finds himself blind and helpless, being led into the nearby city of Damascus, where he had been planning to go to arrest men and women, to take them back to Jerusalem and have them punished for being Jesus' followers. He finds himself in that same city, blind, helpless, crying out to God, waiting for clarity, waiting for revelation from God, crying out to God, Who are you, Lord? What do you want from me? And we know what happens next where Ananias hears God speaking to him and God says, Ananias, go and pray for this man, Saul of Tarsus. 
And Ananias goes and prays for Saul, and his eyes are opened. Scales fall off his eyes. He's baptized, washing away his sins, and receives the gift of the Holy Spirit. And then he heads down to Arabia, and he spends time looking for answers one-on-one. He knows with this kind of radical transformation in his life, he cannot afford to get it second-hand from anybody else. He needs answers from God. You know, if Saul would have come into the Christian way, into being a disciple of Jesus, wanting something for himself, you know what he would have done? He would have gone straight down to Jerusalem and he would have found one of the, the big people in the movement, right? And attached himself very closely to them to see what he can learn from them and how he can get into the inner circle. And maybe ask them, you know, what was, what was the stuff that Jesus taught? What did he do? How can I become one of the... The the top leaders of this movement. But this encounter with Jesus had so radically turned his life around that he knew he couldn't afford to get answers secondhand. He had to get them straight from God. If this was truth, he had to know it with the certainty. So he goes down into Arabia. He spends time there seeking God. He comes back to Damascus and he starts witnessing boldly about what he had experienced, about this Jesus that he had encountered. And it wasn't long before people saw that he had become one of these crazy Jesus followers. And so the disciples ended up having to let him down over the wall in a basket to escape with his life. He goes down to Jerusalem. He spends a few weeks with Peter And it's not long in Jerusalem until people start seeking for his life there. And so he goes off to Tarsus. And we have the silent period when he's in Tarsus. But during that time, his faith is deepening. He's learning to know God. He's learning to walk with God in the everyday, in the mundane And he's finding answers. He's reading the scriptures, rereading the scriptures in a new light. Some of you know what, what that's like when the scripture all of a sudden, it's, it was so dry and dead and all, you read it and it's like, whoa, where was that all this time? And it comes to life. And I'm certain that's what was happening in Saul as he reread the scriptures. He started seeing Jesus everywhere and the calling that Jesus had given him in Damascus. I will show him how many things he must suffer for my sake. That had to be kind of in the back of his mind. God When's this going to start? When are you going to use me to take the gospel to the Gentiles? When am I going to enter into this calling of suffering? And surely that was in the back of his mind as he was there in Tarsus. I don't know, maybe making tents out of, out of goat skins. More importantly, there was this unshakable hope that was growing in his heart where he began to see Jesus was the hope of Israel. Later he told in making defense for for the gospel, he said, it is for the hope of Israel that I'm called to, to question this day. The yearning for deliverance that he had had for so many years where he was waiting for the Messiah to come back to Israel and deliver the people of God had turned into a hope that had been realized where he's like, yes, this is the Messiah. It had become reality inside of him and it was ready to burst forth into a powerful display of the gospel, brought to life through a spirit-filled life in Saul. Because that's why God called him. God didn't just save him just to save Saul. He saved him to make him a testimony to the Gentiles, to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. So back in Jerusalem, over this time, we have a man named Barnabas. Barnabas, we talked about him a little bit yesterday. He was... um, Given the nickname Barnabas, even though his actual name was Joseph, but they called him Barnabas, which means son of consolation. And we talked about the fact that um, he, had, he had been one who had seen the good in, in Saul when the apostles were very skeptical and, and didn't want to accept him. He took Saul and he, and he gave a good report about him, and so they accepted him in Jerusalem. So when a report came to Jerusalem that, that there were Hellenists, in Antioch, up, in, up, up north in Antioch, which is closer to Tarsus than it is to Jerusalem, the church in Jerusalem sent Barnabas up to them. So up to this time, the gospel had mainly just been preached among the Jews. In fact, Acts 11 says, Now those 
who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen. Did you hear that? Scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen. So Saul had been directly responsible for this wave of persecution that happened. And people were actually displaced. They had to move hundreds of miles away to escape with their lives. So they traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also. The Hellenists were Greek people. They were either um, people who had just assimilated Greek culture. Uh, Some of them were actually Jews who had taken on Greek customs and they spoke the Greek language, but they were not. Uh, they were not Orthodox Jews. They weren't, they weren't accepted into the Jewish communities. So these people started preaching to the Hellenists, preaching the Lord Jesus, and the hand of the Lord was with them. And a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they didn't know what to do about it. So they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad. And he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Antioch became the first place where people were called Christians, little Christs, Christ followers. Because the church that rose there rose, it grew quickly, it became strong, and it crossed lines that had traditionally demarcated the church up to this point. Up to this point, people had just been preaching to the Jews, and now suddenly there were Gentile believers who were joining themselves to this Jesus movement. And the people in Jerusalem didn't know how to respond, because up to this point, they kept themselves, their entire lives, the Jews had shunned Gentile sinners. That, that sounds harsh to us, but that's actually what they were required to do. The law required that the Jews, the the faithful Jews who kept the law of God, would keep themselves separate from surrounding nations and their immoral customs. And now, a few men go out there, go up there to Antioch, and they start preaching about Jesus to Gentiles. And these Gentiles come to faith in Jesus, and it's apparent that God is working in their lives. What do we do with these people? Do we tell them that they need to become proselytized Jews, what do we do? So, of course, they send Barnabas up there to check it out. The, the church in Jerusalem knew that Barnabas was a good man for this. He was a good man and full of the Holy Spirit, but he was also the son of consolation, the guy who saw the good in everybody. So he wasn't going to go up there to Jerusalem in a harsh, uh, up to Antioch in a, in a harsh manner and Uh, create more divisions he was going to be the kind of person who could go up there and hear them out and figure out a solution for this barnabas probably went into this with some trepidation there was no precedent for this they didn't know how to handle there had been a few incidents like you know peter going in to to share the gospel with with the gentile but there was no gentile church no precedent had been set they didn't know how to handle this and and barnabas was a levite from an island of Cyprus, which later he and Paul would travel through as they shared the gospel. Um, But he was in Jerusalem during the explosive growth of the church there. So he saw the emergence of the church in Jerusalem, and he was a solid person. Acts chapter 4 talks about him as, as one person who sold land. He had land, and he sold it, and he brought the money and laid it at the feet of the apostles. Remember, just before the story of Ananias and Sapphira? So he had set a trend of generosity and service and community. Um, he was a good man. At any rate, he was now going up to Antioch to figure out what to do with this Gentile group of Jesus followers. He needed someone who understood the, the Greeks, who understood Greek culture and was, was fluent in their language and culture and maybe their philosophy. And he thought he knew just the man. So it says he traveled to Tarsus. Now, Tarsus would have been like 240 kilometers away from, from Antioch. It was a good uh, journey. If he went by land, he could have also sailed across the Aegean Sea, just across the corner um, up to Tarsus. But he went up to Tarsus, and he found Saul. And Saul agrees to leave his hometown, where he had been for the last 10 years or so, and accompanied Barnabas back to Antioch. Saul probably didn't have any idea just how momentous this decision was, because this 
was the beginning of a new adventure for him. A life of adventure, hardship, persecution, stoning, imprisonment, but also a life of seeing the transformative power of the gospel everywhere he went. A life so full of danger and persecution that he later, he later described it as dying every day. That's literally what his life became. A life of dying every day. The two went to Antioch, Barnabas and Saul, and what do you think they did there? So they've got this new church emerging out of, out of the Greek communities. It says they taught. They taught the word. They met and they taught the word. It says in Acts chapter 11 that, they, that for a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And that's when people first began being called Christians in Antioch. It's likely that they were meeting daily, like they had back in Jerusalem when the church emerged there, that they daily they went from house to house, um, teaching, breaking bread, and sharing in the fellowship of this new way that they had become followers of. These, uh, this gospel was radically countercultural for both the Greeks and the Jews, and it required discipleship and teaching and nurture for the church to learn how to become a community, in particular across these lines of cultural division, people that hadn't associated with each other before. Now they were coming together as one community in Christ. It didn't all go smoothly. A while later, there were some men who came up from uh, Judea to Antioch, and they started to teach the disciples there that the Gentiles needed to be circumcised and keep the Jewish law in order to be accepted as, as Christ followers. And Paul and Barnabas withstood them. They had seen the supernatural grace of God at work among the Gentiles, and it was enough to persuade them that, that this was all they needed, the grace of God. Working in the Gentiles, bringing about transformation in them. The Judaizers persisted because they wanted to impose Jewish law on these Gentiles to keep it inside their comfort zone, to keep it inside their boxes, right? So after there was a debate in Antioch, Saul and Barnabas end up traveling all the way down to Jerusalem, way down south. And they convened with the apostles there to figure out what to do about this. And it says there was, there was a long, there was an intense debate among the apostles. They didn't all disagree. Oh, sure, yeah, I mean, the gospel is free for the Gentiles, too. For a lot of them, this was a new idea, and it was stretching them almost to their limits. That uncircumcised Gentiles who hadn't kept any of the law of God could actually be brought into fellowship with the Jewish believers. And so they debated about it for a while, and after a while... Peter stands up and he makes a bold proclamation and he says, we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they. And the assembly fell silent. And then Saul and Barnabas got to tell them the amazing things that God was doing among the Gentiles. And when they heard the signs and wonders recounted that Paul and Barnabas, Saul and Barnabas had seen among the Gentiles. It says the matter was settled. They didn't require the Gentiles to keep the, the religious rules of the, of the Jews, the old covenant law. So they sent a letter back up to, to the Gentile church. Paul and Barnabas delivered it. And it says the believers rejoiced because of the, the encouragement they received. So about this time now we have... Another character who, who steps into the story is a young Greek man. He's also not a Jew. He is, uh, he's a Greek. And he joins Saul and Barnabas in their travels. In fact, they took him along down to Jerusalem when they went to, to speak to, to the apostles there. Saul had grown close to Titus, and he would later refer to, to his relationship with Titus in his letter to the Galatians, as evidence that God had torn down the walls between the Jews and the Gentiles. This would become a hallmark of Paul's ministry. The separation between Jew and Gentile was no longer external. There was no longer a wall that divided Jews and Gentiles. The separation still existed. 
Did you hear that? The separation between Jew and Gentile was no longer external. It was internal. And there were simply those who were regenerate, those who had been transformed by the power of the gospel, translated out of the kingdom of darkness into the light, and those who had not. Jew and Gentile. That was the only difference now. It was an internal difference. See, the Jews had correctly seen that the heathen, idol-worshipping, immoral people that were around them, they had to remain separate from them. They correctly saw them as being under influence of the God of this world and that they were called to a different lifestyle. They were called to serve the one true God. But now Saul had begun to see a new spiritual reality. The Messiah had, through his death and resurrection, destroyed the power of the God of this world so that his influence no longer existed inside of those people's lives. He saw literally in front of his eyes people who were transformed, people who used to be idol-worshipping, immoral, fornicators, and covetous, and hateful, and murderers. He saw those kinds of people be transformed by the power of the gospel in He saw that whoever believed on Jesus could be transformed and delivered from the power of the system, the God of this world. That without the rituals of outward purification and keeping the law, Jesus took their heart and mind and renewed them and made them every bit as pure as a law-keeping Jew who also needed that transforming power. Every bit as holy in God's eyes. There was no more distinction, no more separation. A long time later, toward the end of Paul's life, he's writing a letter to Titus, who he's hanging out with now. And he tells him, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Remember, he's writing this to Titus, who is not a law-keeping Jew. He's He's a Greek. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self controlled upright and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope and the the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness. He's writing this to a Greek. He redeems us from all lawlessness and to purify to himself a peculiar people for his own possession zealous to good works. Titus, you were a Gentile. You were a Greek. You were not a law-keeping Jew. But you've seen with your own eyes the power of the grace of God, the way it comes into a life and transforms it and takes a person out of the kingdom of darkness and puts them into the kingdom of light. This theme of heart transformation became the central point of all of Paul's ministry, all of his preaching, all of his church planting. You see that thread run through all of his letters. So from Antioch, Saul and Barnabas set off on their first missionary, missionary journey. Acts chapter 13 says, Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manian, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart Saul, Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid hands on them and sent them off. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia and from there they sailed to Cyprus. Cyprus, if you remember, was where Barnabas was from. So they were sent out by the Holy Spirit for a specific mission, a work to which I have called them, is what God said. So they left Antioch, sailed down to uh, to an island, and then they went up to Galatia and traveled around and established several churches. And it's in here that we read about Saul's first miracle, the first recorded miracle that, that we see that God did through Saul. Anybody remember what it was? As they're sharing the gospel with someone one day. Any guesses as to what his first miracle might have been? No? All right, just 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 guess something. Like lame man healed or yeah? Uh, that was later. Guy who fell out the window and died, that was later. 
That was probably one of his most impressive miracles, right? Bringing a dead person back to life. Blind man seeing, maybe. Lame man walking. Actually, it wasn't any of those. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elymas, the magician, for this is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. Does anybody know now what the first miracle was? Mowed him with blindness. But Saul, who is also called Paul, and here we have the switch in his name, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at Elymas and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now, behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see for a time. And immediately, mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went out seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. This reminds us of what Paul told the Corinthians later. He said, My speech and my message were not implausible words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. There was power in the words that Paul was speaking, backed sometimes by outward signs, but it wasn't just the signs. There was power in the words that he communicated because they were made alive by the Holy Spirit. He didn't just teach in the Spirit. He had experienced in the Spirit the revelation of Jesus, the revelation of God that came to him in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. You can't teach others what you haven't experienced in revelation of the Spirit and of power. You have to receive it first as a revelation in your heart before you can communicate it effectively to others. Otherwise, it's just empty words. We've probably all met people who have lots of great words and lots of good teaching, but they, they're light, they're, they're empty because they're not backed by someone having experienced, by that person having experienced the revelation firsthand. So Saul's first miracle wasn't healing a blind man or making a lame man walk or raising someone from the dead. It was striking a man blind for opposing the truth. And Sergius Paulus saw something in this passion in Saul for the truth that convinced him. There was something persuasive. It says that he was convinced when he saw the teaching. He was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. He was astonished at the teaching of the Lord as it came through Saul. There's something that shifted in Saul's life here. And he began to walk in an authority that God had given him for the ministry that he he had called him to. Up to this point, the team was Barnabas and Saul. And from here out, it was Paul and Barnabas. And Paul finds his feet and he gets into the harness of his calling as an apostle that had come like 15 years earlier when God had called him. He starts operating in that authority. First, he found his answers from God. He found directly from God who he was. He came to know Christ And he spent those years in silence, seeking God, learning from Him, studying the Word. And then he engaged in the ministry that God had called him. Now, Paul was his Greek name. And from here, Luke starts using Paul through the rest of the book of Acts. um, Probably because a lot of their travels were through Greek territory rather than to the Jews. But Paul learned that God didn't only call him, that God gave him the equipping that he needed to fulfill the ministry. So for the next about 14 years or so, Paul was a missionary, traveling around, going from city to city, village to village, teaching the gospel. Unfortunately, after um, Saul and Barnabas' first 
missionary trip. Um, they came back to Antioch and they were about to go on another journey and they had a split because Paul wanted, uh, Barnabas wanted to take along his nephew, John Mark, who had accompanied them on, on an earlier trip but had abandoned them during that journey. And Paul saw him as unreliable. He said, if somebody is just going to you know, run off when we're in the middle of a mission trip, we probably shouldn't take him on the next one. And it says the contention between the two, between this amazing pair, was so sharp that they decided to part ways. Paul went one way, and he took with him Silas, and then picked up another third wheel um, down from, from Lystra, Timothy, we'll uh, talk more about him later. He was in his late teens and became like a son to, to Paul. And Barnabas um, went his way and kind of leaves the storyline here because Luke is still with Paul. And Luke is writing the, the, the account in Acts. So joined by Luke, um, Paul travels to Philippi where he and Silas were beaten and imprisoned. We know that story well. Um, remember how there was this demon-possessed uh, girl who was following Paul and Silas around, proclaiming that these men were servants of the Most High God. And after a couple of days of this, Paul was grieved in his spirit, and he turned and he rebuked the spirit, and she was healed. She was delivered from, from the demon. But unfortunately for Paul and Silas, uh, this, this girl's powers of divination were the means of of much gain for her owners who would uh, charge people to have their fortunes told through this evil spirit. And when they saw that the means of their gain was taken away, they incited a riot and they took Paul and Silas and they beat them and they stuck them in prison, put them into stocks. We know that story. We know how they uh, were singing, praying and singing praises to God at midnight. There was an earthquake and uh, Paul and Silas ended up being able to lead the, the jail keeper to faith in Jesus Christ. This was just the beginning of many such beatings, stonings, imprisonments, persecutions, suffering, preaching, often accompanied by miracles. And Paul traveled around and planted churches in Ephesus and Philippi, Corinth, Thessalonica, lots of other places. Um, we read of some of the miracles that, that he and Silas and some of the others that were accompanying them did. Uh, First of all, there was that miracle of striking Elymas, the magician, blind. And then there was a man who was lame from birth in Lystra. And Paul um, commanded him to get up and walk, and he walked. Uh, there was the slave girl in Philippi who was, who was delivered from the spirit of divination. And in Asia, it says that God was doing such extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul that even handkerchiefs and aprons that touched his skin were carried away to the sick. And their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Have you ever heard of anyone with that kind of extraordinary miracle-working power? Now, can you imagine if, if Michael would have that kind of miracle-working power? We'd, just be like, we'd take a handkerchief and just brush it up against him. Then you could send it off, and somebody would be healed. Literally, that's what God was doing through Paul. It's, it's crazy. But it was a confirmation of the word of power that he was preaching. God was using this as a confirmation. There was the man who fell out of the upper story window, Eutychus, when Paul was preaching a long time. We could try that and see how many people go to sleep, right? Fortunately, we're all on the first floor. But he fell out of the, the upper story window, and it says he was taken up dead. And people were concerned. Paul goes down, and he takes him by the hand, he picks him up, and he's like, don't worry, guys, he's alive. Raised him from the dead. On his way to Rome years later, remember the story of uh, how they were shipwrecked and an angel came and told Paul that none of them were going to lose their lives and they ended up on this, stranded on this island and they were trying to build a fire after getting out of the cold uh, seawater and Paul's there gathering firewood and a viper comes out of the fire and, and latches onto his hand and the, the people, the, the local people in Malta were like, aha. He escaped the shipwreck, but no doubt this man is a murderer or something. And then they watched, and they expected him to swell up and fall over, and nothing happened. So they're like, oh, he's a god. 
after this happened, it says that uh, Paul went, went into um, a man who was sick and he prayed for him, laid hands on him, and, and he was um, healed of his diseases. He was healed of his sickness. And after that, lots of people on the island brought the sick and, and Paul and, and the others traveling with him. They, they laid hands on them and they prayed for them and they were healed of their sicknesses. And the shipwreck crew, along with their prisoners, gained great favor on the island so that the people, the locals, actually when they left, I, they must have got another ship to, to go on to Rome. They, when they left, the people of the island supplied them with everything they needed on the ship. But there's also a lot of other stuff that we don't read about in the book of Acts. You know, the book of Acts is like probably at least a 30-year span, right? And it just has a few of the highlights, just just interesting tidbits here and there. That's all we get is just a little snapshot. But if we look at the writings of Paul, we get some more insight into some of what he lived during this time. There was weeks, months, in some cases, a couple of years that he would spend at one place teaching day after day after day. Tedious, probably. Teaching, discipling people, um, working their problems out with them as they figured out what does community look like, what does, what's church supposed to be like, establishing fellowships, teaching people how to walk out this newfound power of the gospel that they had experienced. And it came with a lot of suffering and hardship. And we see it in the letters that Paul writes to the churches later. He writes... Uh, a couple of letters to the Corinthians. Actually, I think there were four letters that he wrote to the, to the Corinthian church, and we have two of them remaining. He wrote a, a lofty letter to the church in Rome that he had never visited explaining what the gospel was. Aren't you glad he wrote to the church in Rome? That's an awesome piece of literature that we have that explains the gospel in probably clearer terms than anywhere else. In the word of God, he wrote to the Ephesians and the Colossians. He wrote to them lots of deep truths about who they were in Christ and his transforming power in them. He wrote to the Galatians telling them he's worried that their initial simplicity and believing the gospel, they were being they were being taken away from that. And they were starting to to try to add other things to their faith in Christ. He wrote to the Philippians from prison and, and told them about the joy that they could experience even in the middle of hardship and suffering. He wrote to the Thessalonians and he told them about the hope of the resurrection and the hope of the second coming of Christ. He may have written the book of Hebrews. We don't know for sure. He wrote um, a letter to Philemon about his, uh, his slave um, who had become a follower of Jesus. And then he wrote toward the end of his life three letters one to Titus, who had traveled extensively with him, and two letters, probably just in the last two years or so of his life while he was imprisoned in Rome, he wrote letters to Titus, uh, to, to Timothy, um, giving him some of his final charges, letting him know some of the things that were important to him in his last days as he transferred the charge that he had carried to younger men who would carry it in the future. His letters are some of the greatest rhetorical masterpieces in existence. That's why people still struggle for years with the epistle of Romans. Great thinkers will take a book like that and wrestle with it to find out what it means. To this day, 2,000 years later. But Paul tells his audience... It's not where it's at. It's not in human wisdom and philosophy and good sounding words. There's something else. His letters are glaringly missing a lot of autobiography. A man like Paul who had traveled for years and established churches and seen astonishing miracles, probably unlike anyone else had seen in the New Testament church and had seen massive transformations happen in cities where he had preached? Can you imagine all the things he could have written to these new churches about? All the things that he had seen? He could have really wowed them. But instead of boasting in the experiences he had, 
he intentionally boasts in his weakness and suffering. Why? Even to the Corinthians, who they were a church that really um, exulted in the spiritual gifts that they had, and they were comparing their spiritual gifts to each other, and they were like, no, I think this gift is better, and, and no, uh, I, I follow Paul, and someone else would be like, I've, I'm more like with Peter, because he was one of the originals who followed Jesus, and, and others are like, uh, P- Apollos is a, like, he's a deeper uh, Teacher, he does more expository teaching and stuff, you know. So they had these factions and divisions. And Paul writes them a letter, 2 Corinthians. He writes them a letter to show them. And he's, he goes on for a little while. I used to be annoyed by 2 Corinthians. Because it sounds for a little while like, like Paul's just like really going on and on about himself. And where he had gotten his apostolic authority. But I saw it in a new light because I realized that the whole point of 2 Corinthians is he's telling them, Look, I received my apostolic authority straight from from Jesus. I didn't go down and get it from other people. I got it from Jesus. And look, some of these things are the things that I've experienced as an apostle. I could go on and on boasting about these things. He says in in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, he says, The load that we had to carry was far too heavy for us. It got to the point where we gave up on life itself. Yet deep inside ourselves, yes, deep inside ourselves, we received the death sentence. Saying, this is the kind of life I have lived as an apostle to bring the gospel to you. And he's telling them, in spite of all the things that I've experienced and all the things that I've seen, I'm not boasting in those things. I'm choosing to boast in my weakness. He told them in chapter 4, we have this treasure in jars of clay, the treasure of the Spirit of God. We have it in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So he does speak of some of the experiences he had, and he includes in those experiences things that he had experienced back in Tarsus during the silent years. He talks about revelation that he had received. He talks about himself in the third person. I know a man who was carried up to the third heaven. I don't know if he was in the body or out of the body, but he is apparently describing things that he himself had experienced. And he's saying the revelations, the the surpassing greatness of his revelations, they they were so amazing. In fact, he had seen, he heard things uttered that were not lawful. For a man to hear. This was the kind, this was the level of revelation that he had received from God. If anybody could boast in what he had experienced and in his spirituality and in his spiritual gifts and in his miraculous powers, it would have been Paul. But he says that to keep himself from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations... A thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will all the more gladly boast of my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I'm content with weaknesses, with insults, hardships, persecutions, calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Now, how about raise your hand high if you boast in your weaknesses? Anybody? Any takers? Michael, all the way in the back. One out of 120. (laughs) What does this mean to boast in your weaknesses? Do you see that as something that marks your life? 
that you boast in your weaknesses so that the, the power of Christ may be seen in you? This is pretty counterintuitive, isn't it? Because this, he's including here the spiritual experiences that he had, that he could have boasted about at length. He could have used these as examples of the power of God. And yet he chose to set those aside in favor of his own weaknesses and things he suffered because he saw that in his weakness, the power of Christ was made manifest. I don't know of any demographic that needs to hear that more than this one right here. Okay? Ages 16 to 30, uh, 38. We need to hear that. That through our weaknesses, the power of Christ is made manifest. And that that can be our boast. That the power of Christ comes through our weaknesses. It comes through human vessels that are like jars of clay. I remember when I was probably about uh, 20 or 22, I'm not sure, somewhere in that range. I was, I was uh, witnessing on the street. And I was telling people about the power of the gospel. And it was kind of an experiment for me. But I was frustrated about something. I wanted to be able to tell them, that I went from a life of sin to a life of transformation and now I live a perfect life. Like, wouldn't that be cool if you could tell people that? Like, since I believed in Jesus, I, I just don't sin anymore. I used to be angry and lustful and proud and arrogant and now I, that's just all gone. God just took that all away. And I was, one day I was praying about that. I was like, God, why is, why is my testimony so weak i can't tell people yeah since i believed in jesus i never sin anymore and yeah like have all these superpowers and stuff why is my testimony so weak and god brought this verse to my mind like a light bulb we have this treasure in jars of clay that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. Now, I want to be clear about something. I'm not saying that you go live a life of sin and continue in sin. The Bible is clear that if we continue in sin, we don't have the, the life of Christ in us, okay? He came to deliver us from sin. And yet, He allows us to live it out in weakness so that the excellency of the power of, may be of God and not of us. Can you glory in that? Can you glory in those times when, like Dan was talking about this morning, when you have to fall on your face and you're like, God, I see that area in my life that you've shown up. And you would like to tell people, actually, I lived the last six months perfect, sparkly clean. And God's saying, that's not where it's at. This is where it's at is a humble, contrite heart that responds when I show you another thing to yield to. So that the power of Christ can be made manifest through you. That's what Paul saw. That's what he lived out during those years. He didn't look back and say, yeah, I did pretty well with those missionary years while I was planting all those churches. He said, man, it was through a lot of weakness suffering and hardship and I'll gladly boast in my weaknesses because I'm seeing that where I'm weak Christ is strong in fact the power of Christ is made manifest more in me through my weaknesses young guys you've got to get a hold of this when you're young <laughs> especially when you're young What emerges from this in Paul's letters is a surprising set of values for a man with so many astonishing accomplishments. Toward the end of his life, his message had basically become condensed to one thing. He wrote to the Philippians from prison. He said, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. That transforming power that he has given you, let your manner of life be worthy of this. He had become consumed with one thing, the gospel. 
not just the gospel and how it's lived out in you, but the man, Jesus. He saw that is the gospel. Jesus and his perfect example. And listen to what he says to the Philippians. He says, so if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love and being of full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. See, that's what's on the other side. Selfish ambition, conceit, when we lift up ourselves, when we glory in our accomplishments and even in how the power of God is working through us. We can put a wrong kind of emphasis on that. Don't do that. Be like Jesus. In humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not account, did not count equality with God a thing to be held on to. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore, because of this, God has highly exalted him and given him a name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess. Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And in the next chapter, he tells them, we are the circumcision We're the true people of God who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Zero confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Guys, if you want to compare your resumes, we can compare circumcised the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, persecuting the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. You want to compare? Whatever gain I had, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my lord for this sake, for this reason i have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that i may gain Christ and be found in him not having my own righteousness that comes from the law but that which comes through faith in Christ the righteousness from god that depends on faith that i may know him And the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death so that by any means possible, I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. You see what had happened in Paul's life? Somewhere along the way, God started stripping away the stuff that Paul held up as good, the stuff that he had valued before. God started stripping that away, even his achievements in ministry. And you see it more clearly toward the end of his life than anywhere else. It's not what it's about. It's about the person of Jesus, his righteousness, becoming like him in his death, sharing in his resurrection. That's what it's about. He wrote to the Galatians, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some of you who trouble and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, If anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. 
For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that I pre- that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For we did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but received it through revelation from Jesus Christ. What's the gospel he's talking about in a nutshell? It's Jesus, the person of Jesus. Can I just say this? It's not even what Jesus did through Paul, but it's Jesus. And he was so passionate about this toward the end of his ministry. He's like, guys, this is what it's all about. Everything else, you can just scrap it. You can take all the collective righteousness that you had, all the things that you would have boasted in otherwise, you can put it over here on a pile and count it rubbish for the sake of knowing Christ. Because that's the one thing that matters. Knowing Christ. The gospel in a nutshell he wrote it to the Corinthians, chapter 15. I love this concise, nutshell gospel here. I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are saved. You are being saved if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. Here's what he had received. This was the gospel that Paul received. Listen. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried. That he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. There it is. That simple. Christ died, was buried, and was raised again. Paul really believed, after all the stuff that he had seen, This was the one thing that mattered supremely above everything else. That Christ took our sin on himself. That he died for us. That he was buried and he rose again. He had encountered that Christ on the road to Damascus. And it had so radically transformed his life that he was willing to say, I'm willing to stake my whole life on this. This is the only thing that really matters. This comes through revelation, supernatural revelation in your heart. Just hearing the words isn't enough. They have to go into our heart, transform us. John was the the disciple. He described himself as the disciple who Jesus loved. He was close to Jesus. He was in the inner circle the, the top three that would get to go with Jesus up to the Mount of Transfiguration, saw Jesus transfigured there, saw Moses and Elijah. And he writes, after he's received the Holy Spirit, he writes about what they saw. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. Even though they saw him, they didn't know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes on Him should not perish but have eternal life. God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world that the world through Him might be saved. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment, that light came into the world and people loved darkness rather than light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. As Paul encountered Jesus, the Messiah, the hope of Israel, this is what he had seen more clearly than anything else. The light had come into the world. 
and that by looking at Jesus, we behold the glory of God. He found that this was the message that transformed people, transporting them out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. This is why he told the Corinthians, when I came to you, I determined to know nothing among you except Christ and him crucified. Corinthians, I'm convinced that all of the philosophy and all the big words and all the miracles and all the other things don't stack up in comparison to this one thing. Christ and him crucified. He told them, I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband, Christ, to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. I warned those who sinned before and all the others, and I warned them now while I'm absent, as I did when I was present on my second visit, that if I come again, I will not spare them. Since you seek proof that Christ is speaking in me, he is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. For he was crucified in weakness, but he lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him, but in dealing with you, we will live with him by the power of God. Examine yourselves then. See whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or don't you realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you fail to meet the test. I hope that you will find out that we have not failed the test. Test yourselves. See if this hope is in you. Have you come to the light? Have you seen Jesus as worth everything? As worth giving up everything in your life? You can take everything that you're living for, everything that's dear to you, all of your accomplishments, and put them over here on a stack. Do they compare to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus as your Lord? what it all boiled down to. I want you to know Christ. If you forget everything else about this week, I hope you will find one thing. That Christ is supremely worth more than anything else in your life. That He's worth casting your life onto that he will bring salvation he'll transfer you out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light that's the power of christ that's why we sang those words it's the only thing that's worth living for guys everything else you can put over here and count it as part of the scrap heap so that you may know Christ. Why don't we stand and let's pray. God, we've heard these words all our lives. Jesus came into the world to save sinners. I pray that they would go deep into our hearts and that we would see who Jesus is. The Messiah, the hope of Israel and our hope. The only one who can set us free from darkness and sin. We ask, Lord, that you would give us that revelation in our hearts that we would know your Son. And I pray, Lord, for those who are resisting, who are not coming to you, because they don't want to come to the light because their deeds are evil and they're afraid of those deeds being exposed. I pray, Lord, that they would see your incredible, overwhelming love and mercy and kindness. 
and that they would run to you for refuge. I pray, Lord, for those of us who have been walking in the way, following Jesus, but we have a collection of things over here that are important to us. Some of our achievements, our spiritual gifts, our accomplishments. And we've begun to look at those instead of looking at the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. Help us to bring those idols to the altar and to count them as worthless so that we may know Christ being made like you in your death. Holy Spirit, do the work in our hearts that only you can do. Bring that revelation. In Jesus' name, amen.